I'd like us to go back uh, this evening to Exodus. To uh, We read John's Gospel, the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman to which I'll refer. But also we're going to look at uh, the second commandment. This is the second in our series of looking through the Ten Commandments. And it's John uh, chapter, uh, sorry, um, Exodus chapter 20 and uh, from verse 4 to verse 6. But I'll just read from the beginning again. Uh, Last week we looked at the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, And the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment is this, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I... The Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so we're going to spend just a a few minutes looking at this commandment this evening. And in many ways, the first two commandments are uh, sides, uh, two sides of one coin. You, You kind of need both of them together, and uh, they're uh, quite similar, but they're also, uh, there's distinctive uh, truths and emphasis uh, about them. Uh, The first command is really about making sure that we worship uh, the only God there is. There's only one God, and we worship him, and we recognize him as worthy worthy of our worship, and that we can't put anything before God, and we saw that last week. And this is more about the importance of not worshipping the right God the wrong way. So if the first commandment is the fact that there is a God and we worship him, and uh, we worship him because he's worthy, then this command is more about uh, making sure that uh, we do worship this right God, but that we don't worship him the wrong way. Because it's possible to worship the right God the wrong way. And so he wants us to make sure that we are worshipping the right way. It matters, in other words, how we worship God. It matters how you live your life in worship to God. It matters how we worship God when we gather together. It matters that we understand the God that we worship, so we worship him the right way. This command is all about God not being misrepresented. We don't like that, do we? Um, Thankfully, none of us... Uh, are famous. Well, some of you might be famous, I don't know. But none of you are are in the press very much. And it must be really difficult for people in the press, in the media, because they're constantly being misrepresented. I don't know if you've ever been quoted in a paper or quoted on the television or anything. And uh, they get it wrong. And they get your character wrong. And they get your, your motives wrong. And they get your thinking wrong. And you kind of, you well up with a degree of Righteous indignation because, well, they don't know me. And they're not saying the right things about me. And uh, they've really got the wrong end of the stick when it comes to me. And that must be what it is like for so many people in the public eye uh, when cheap things are said or things are said quickly or carelessly about them. And, And that can happen to us. Not just when we're famous, it can happen to us with friends. When we hear something and maybe it's gossip and we pass it on. And then it gets back to us and says, well, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not what I was thinking. That's not why I did that. And people misrepresent us. 
sometimes deliberately, sometimes completely innocently. But really, this command is very much about God not being misrepresented. He's a real God. He's a significant God. He's an important God. He's a person. We're to be in relationship with him, and we're not to misrepresent him by worshiping him the wrong way, by following him, by serving him in a way that he doesn't uh, want us to do. We saw last week, really, that our hearts, our, all, our sinful hearts, have this tendency to displace God all the time with other objects of worship. G.K. Chesterton is reputed to have said, there's me saying, he is, he did say, not just reputed to have said, uh, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And uh, that is often the case, uh, isn't it? Uh, that uh, anything goes when God is taken out of the picture, uh, putting first anything but God, where our desires dictate what we regard as important and what we put first. And uh, Calvin said that sinful tendency is for our heart to be a perpetual factory of idols. And we kind of looked at that a little bit uh, last week. But also what this command speaks about and recognizes with regard to our own hearts is the tendency we have to distort God. We might believe in God, And we might believe there is a God, but we distort the God that there is. We believe in God, but we believe the wrong things about God. Now that might come in a very obvious form for us, in the form of false religion, uh, which would say that many paths lead to God. That God is is a kind of amalgam of lots of different... uh, esoteric thinking and and religious observance, whether it's Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, uh, or Mormon gods, it doesn't matter. All paths lead back to him. Uh, And it doesn't really matter what we believe as long as we believe in some kind of higher power. But that does stand very much against the exclusivity of the Bible's claims and the exclusivity of Jesus' claims himself, which we saw this morning than when we were talking about going home. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life to our way, the truth of life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so he makes these exclusive claims. We can't make them ourselves. We don't dictate them ourselves, but they come from Jesus and we're followers of him. So we recognize and see that there is, there is false religion. There must be, if there is truth, there is falseness. And we stand humbly and respectfully on the platform of truth and the truth that God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And uh, we recognize that uh, that is crucial because God isn't simply a, a plasticine person that we can mold any way we want, but he's a real being and he is a real character and uh, truth is known about him, and falsehood can be uh, um, uh, passed uh, on about him. So there's false worship, but there's also false ideas about God and uh, doing what God doesn't want us to do. Now, this command uh, that we're given here is primarily not so much speaking about idolatry in the sense of uh, 
the kind of idolatry that the Egyptians engaged in when, where Israel was freed from. They had, they had lots of different gods, hundreds of gods, gods for everything. And they had images made of wood and stone that they worshipped. Um, it wasn't so much that that is what God is speaking about here, not about false gods with false idols. He's speaking about using idols to worship the true God. Now, do you see the difference? The difference is what the Israelites did when Moses came down from the mountain. And when he came down, the people had created a golden calf, hadn't they? And it wasn't an idol in and of itself. It was, a, it was to be a representation of God, the God who'd freed them from slavery. So it, it was the God they were worship, wanted to worship, but it was in the form of an idol. And uh, God was did not want that to happen. It happens at different points in the Old Testament where the Israelites kind of got mixed up and used visual representations to bow down to, to worship God. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob they were worshipping, but they were worshipping an idolatrous form of him, and and, uh, God doesn't want that to happen in their worship because God is spirit. And those who worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. So the idols, the, the Israelites had false ideas of worshipping the true God. Now we are far too sophisticated to do that, aren't we? But there's other ways in which we can worship what we think to be the true God, because we believe in, in God, the wrong way. We can do so by uh, mental idolatry. You know, when you hear a sentence that starts with, uh, I think God is like, it usually leads to idolatry. I think God's like this. I think God's like that. I don't believe that God can be like this. I don't think God's like that. I can't believe in that kind of God as, as is revealed in the Bible. Anything that's, that stems from our own ideas of what God is like, what we would maybe, what we would love him to be, maybe, what we think he ought to be that is in contradiction to how he reveals himself in his word is mental idolatry. And we hear it all the time, don't we? And we, we think about it all the time. And we, we are in danger of being idolatrous all the time ourselves where we think, well, I don't really like that kind of uh, revelation of God. I would much rather a God who was like this or like that, much more like me, much more like whoever. And it's easy for us to be engaged in mental idolatry. And it's easy at the same time for us to remold God at that level in our own thinking. Um, we see it all the time. We see it all the time in religion uh, where people have decided that the Bible isn't the revelation of God or the final revelation of God. So they change God all the time. They change morality and they change thinking and they change ideas about who God is. Um, uh, And a society which has rejected the idea of divine authority as ours has in a a law of authority and specifically has uh, rejected the idea of exclusivity will remold God in their own thinking. A God that must be tolerant of everything because we live in a tolerant society. J. John, who has written a really good uh, commentary or, or, or book on the Ten Commandments, uh, talks about society today and says that uh, we're tolerant of everything. 
except blood sports, fur coats, new pie passes, and traditional Christianity. And that's very true in many ways. It's the tolerance of intolerance. And uh, the whole idea uh, of uh, re-typesetting God to meet this tolerant society that is tolerant of everything but the truth is a danger that would make us idolatrous in our understanding of God. And of course, we can be idolatrous by replacing God uh, in a religious way where we can uh, focus our attention on our religion and on our own form of religion and of our own obedience to that religion or of attendance at the church of that religion or we can be idolatrous towards the denomination that we belong to or even theology and reformed thinking and Calvin and a particular frame of worship are certain truths that we regard as being the absolute exclusive revelation of the, the nature and character of God beyond, who, uh, beyond what Scripture allows us to do. Satan will always co- often come as an angel of light. And so we don't put our faith and our trust in any of these things. But we recognize that God must be allowed to be worshipped for who he is and that we don't misrepresent him and make him a God that we simply want and we like. I think that's why it's one of the reasons there's so many divisions in the church. It's one of the reasons there's so many different brands because everyone thinks that their version of God is the right one. There's a lot of fundamental truths about God that we must stick to, but there is also a lot that is not revealed, and there's a lot that we are allowed to have different opinions of in terms of behavior and action and understanding. So how do we interpret and understand uh, this command which reminds us uh, of the nature and character of God? Well, we, we are required to... Uh, go to the New Testament. We're required to recognize uh, the reality that uh, the commands expose our need of a savior and expose our need of uh, the light of Christ to lighten up our darkness and to remind us and show us uh, who God is and how he wants to be worshipped. And of course we see uh, who God is in the person of Jesus Christ And he tells us uh, very specifically in that passage we read in John chapter 4, which is not dissimilar in terms of the background to uh, the kind of uh, problems that the Jewish people were having when uh, Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman and there's division between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans think they have got God right and they know how to worship him. And the Jews think they've got... Uh, God right and they know how to worship him and the two never meet and they hate one another and there's great division between them and God in speaking to this woman Jesus speaking to this woman says you know those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth John 24 Uh, when true worshippers worship the father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshippers the father seek God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth that's a hugely significant factor of our understanding of uh, the commandment that we can't worship him in and of ourselves 
that we need to be spiritually reborn. It's key. We need a change in our hearts. And we need to be reborn so we can understand and worship him. And worship him through the prism again as we look again at the cross. Because uh, he is spirit. Uh, so we can't form him into anything um, either in the heavens above in the sky or the earth beneath or the water below. Now that's kind of creation language, isn't it? It's the same kind of language that's in Genesis 1 to 3. And he says, you can't worship God as something that's like us. Because he's not like us, because he's a spirit and he's eternal. And uh, he is unchangeable and he is separate from us unless we come to him uh, through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are made for relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we worship him in Jesus' name and through Jesus. And uh, that is the only way that we can truly worship him. The only image that God um, that God gives his stamp of approval to is us. That we are made in God's image. That's the only image he allows. It's a broken image by sin. But it's an image that's renewed in Christ. And uh, we recognize the significance and the value of who we are because he has given his spirit to redeem us so that we become like God and like Jesus Christ, to renew us, to forgive us, and to bring us closer to himself. So when we gather in worship, for example, public worship, that's what we always, uh, we often talk about, gather together, we worship in spirit. That is genuine worship is in the name of Jesus. And it's in his strength. And it is having come forgiven and cleansed and renewed by his spirit. And it's coming dependent on him. It's not about great music, great preaching, great company. These things are all there in the mix, as it were. But the important reality is that we come in the name and in their reliance on Jesus Christ and his spirit. You can't worship him by just uh, dragging yourself into his presence and kind of hoping that something nice will happen. We don't worship him by the ritual of coming. We don't worship him just by being here. Worship requires that we are dependent on his spirit, genuinely and in reality, and that we are spiritual beings, that is, that we're people who are living in relationship with him. And along with that, uh, our worship must be in spirit and in truth. And that, of course, not goes, goes not just for our, our public worship here. It goes for our lives. Uh, that's, that's very important. Uh, Romans 12, 1 speaks about us uh, being living sacrifices, uh, living worshippers, holy and acceptable to God. Our, our whole uh, lives are to be based on truth. That's a really significant fact here. Jesus, God doesn't want to be misrepresented. How is he not going to be misrepresented when we worship him in truth? When we understand who he is, he has revealed himself. The word is really, really important. So much so that, you know, and we've talked about it a lot here recently, is that Jesus calls himself the word. 
is the word incarnate, is the communication. He's talking about who God is uh, through himself. It's a revelation of God. The word matters. Scripture matters. The Bible matters because it speaks about who God is. And all of it speaks about who God is. So we saw these bits this morning that you thought were, were boring and uh, irrelevant and insignificant about all the details of the tabernacle. And it all speaks about God. It all speaks about his nature and his character. And it all points forward to Jesus. And we will always be learning about God in the word. And it's to be our guide and it's to be the focus. That's why this thing here is in the middle of the church, the pulpit. Because the word of God matters when we gather together. That's why that was up there like that. It wasn't so it would be 10 feet above contradiction. It would be so that everyone in the galleries when there was no microphone system would hear it. And it was central. The word was central. Not any kind of image, not any crucifix, nothing else but the word. The living, growing blossoming word of God. And so the truth matters tremendously to us. You know in that passage in uh, uh, Romans chapter 12 that I mentioned there at the end of the 11 chapters of hugely deep and magnificent theology. uh, Therefore I urge you brothers, Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, offer uh, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Or, uh, as J.B. Phillips uh, uh, translates it, do not let uh, the world squeeze you into its mold. And it says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. What by? By dance? By singing? By meals together? No. No. By the renewing of your mind. He says it's by the renewing of our mind. It's because truth matters. And again, to a greater or lesser degree, I'm not making any judgments on these other things that I mentioned. Although we'll not be doing any dancing here quite shortly. But it is the truth, God's revelation, that is absolutely significant to our understanding of God and keeping this commandment. We will not make an idol of the living God when we know him in truth. And we will only know him in truth when we are opening our minds to his word. And that is hugely significant. Hugely important. Can I just stress that to the young people? That you will make the Bible really important in your life. Because it's the truth that reveals the character of God. And it's beautiful. And it's life-changing because it reveals a living God, a living Savior, and uh, one of great magnitude. And so we recognize that uh, worship is to be uh, greatly, uh, is to be spiritual, and it's to be through uh, Jesus Christ. And it is, uh, this commandment is also an expression of, uh, of the nature of God's love for us which we see in Jesus Christ, of course. But here it's maybe described differently. He says, you know, worship me, don't bow down to them the wrong way, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now we've kind of, uh, it's a pejorative term, jealousy for us, for the most part. It's not a a positive word, it's a negative word generally. We think of uh, someone who's jealous as being someone who's insane or possessive or insecure. They're really jealous. 
But there's a real positive side to jealousy as well. It's about protection and uh, there's a goodness, obviously, in God. There's a goodness, you know, if, uh, if a, a husband uh, has a picture of another woman in his wallet, uh, then his wife has every right to be jealous about that, that uh, he is looking at and uh, keeping close to him, this picture of somebody else that he is not with, that he's not married to. There's a right, can you see, you can see that, can't you? A right jealousy that uh, uh, that person's possessive. There's, a, there's an exclusivity in that relationship that doesn't bear uh, somebody else's picture being in uh, the wallet. And that's, the, that's partly what is being spoken of here is this idea that uh, maybe less romantically a mother or a father's love for their child, a possessive, protective love that wouldn't just give them away or wouldn't allow uh, others to take them. And God is like that. He has, he's, he has a jealous love. It's shown to us on the cross, and that must always be for us, the prism through which we look at this command and, and this uh, characteristic of jealousy, the inestimable cost that we've seen before of his great love for us, this exclusive love that when we come to him, he says, you are mine, you are my precious, precious people. You are mine. And it's a, a love that bears no rivals. So he says to you, you can't share your heart with uh, other gods or with other things that put uh, me uh, further down the line. God isn't just, he's never an added extra. He's never just a lifestyle choice. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he has done everything to set you free and to pour out his grace on you so that death does not have a grip on your life. You have joy and happiness and blessing. And that demands his exclusivity of you. Not just a bit. It demands that exclusivity. He's, he's a jealous God at that level. He says, I don't want you to be lukewarm with me. I don't want you to play hard and fast with my love. I want your submission. I want your trust uh, because there is no other way. And I don't want you to just have me as an added extra because he's the living God and we worship him in our lives by giving him that rightful place. Because there's a reminder here, and it's a very difficult section. With this we finish. Speaks about the Lord being a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And there's a reality there uh, that God is a God of justice that we mentioned and we saw and spoke about this morning. And uh, that there is a day of reckoning and uh, salvation is not an optional extra, and that our obedience is hugely significant. Now, I'm not going to go into this in great depth because I'm not sure if I truly understand this passage, this section, in, in all its uh, detail. 
But there's a very real sense in which God is saying here at least that even as believers, our behavior has repercussions. There's covenantal repercussions. Uh, this was written into very much a, a family covenantal situation, much less individualistic than our day is today. And, and generally, a, a family would, one family, uh, three to four generations would represent one family, as it were. And he's reminding us that sinful behavior has consequences. And uh, he's, he's not saying that children uh, are going to be punished for the sins of their fathers because they're innocent. Uh, speaking about this recognition that uh, those who have rebelled against God, that rebellion passes down quite often through generations. And there is judgment on that. Our lives affect the generations after us. That's a, that, that's a solemnizing thought in this very individualistic age which says, I don't care what anyone else thinks or how anyone else, or how my behavior affects anyone. I'm just going to do what I want. Our behavior has covenantal responsibility, particularly for the heads of homes, for dads, for fathers, I believe. But generally... Leaders in churches, uh, individuals who have influence, the way they live their Christian lives affects not just them, but those around them. And God's justice recognizes that. But also that uh, His grace uh, goes far beyond justice. If His justice is contained within that family unit to those who have rebelled against him and hate him and the consequences within that, then his grace goes to a thousand generations. It is incomparable at one level, his justice. It is remarkably uh, wide and beautiful and uh, gracious. And we are asked... To keep his commandments, how do we, do we do that? Is that legalistic or is that moralistic? I, you always watch against being moralistic in church, just saying, well, just keep the commandments and you'll be okay. Because what do the commandments remind us? None of us can keep the commandments. That's what they remind us. But what is the commandment of God? The commandment is to go to the cross. The commandment of God is that we need a re- redeemer. The commandment of God is to repent in faith. And the command of God is to be obeyed because we have new life and the Holy Spirit that enables us to obey him. Repentance and faith. Then we become living sacrifices. Then we're living in his image. And that's what he wants from us. So the recognition is always to remember spiritual dependency. If you're not praying for the Spirit, if you're not needing the Spirit, then I think you're worshipping an idol. I think you're breaking this command. We worship in spirit, but also in truth. That we don't get up in the morning and say, well, I think my God isn't like that anymore. I don't think God does such and such. And I don't think he's like how he's portrayed in the Bible. 
if there's things in the Bible we struggle with with God, and all of us struggle with different characteristics that are revealed, often we will find that for 2,000 years people have struggled with them, and we can learn from others writing, and others who studied it, and others who have grappled with it, and others who have gone through these issues. But also we need to remember that we are sinners before a holy God, and that there will be times when we are simply asked to trust him. And I know that's not acceptable to some, but uh, it was good enough for Job in that revelation. And I think there are times when we are simply, on the, through the prism of the cross, asked to trust him, and that one day we might understand more. But let us seek to worship him uh, in spirit and in truth, and not make for ourselves idols, and uh, not be disobedient, and not drag him into the gutter of our disobedience, of our sinfulness, uh, and uh, of our rebellion. And may we remind ourselves that our lives affect people around us. And can I just say how important that is in a church context? That the way we live, you, you can drag Christ down in the eyes of others by the way you live. And I can do that by the way we speak by the way we speak about one another or the way we speak about the church or the way we, we deal with one another uh, in our lives. It may be that we recognize uh, the importance of living grace-filled lives together uh, and apart. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord God, we ask and pray that you would teach us more about yourself, that we would understand grace, uh, that we would understand the commandments that you uh, have this amazing revelation of yourself as a person, as a spirit, um, who can't be contained in imagery and can't be bowed down to and worshipped through that imagery or through that mental uh, image that we make of God. May we seek always to uh, worship you uh, through truth, and uh, in the Spirit of God, with that gentle dependence upon Jesus Christ. And we thank you that the commands are such that they are like uh, our teachers that lead us to Jesus. And uh, may they remind us of how far short we fall of your glory, how unable we are truly to ever think that we can uh, obey these ten words without forgiveness, without uh, renewal, and without Christ. So bless us, Lord, we pray, and may we worship Christ more when we think of his absolute perfect ability to obey these commands. For Jesus' sake, amen.